0: Several weeks ago, Cindy and I decided that for our vacation this year we would drive out to Indiana. We used to live in Indiana for about five or six—I guess six or seven years—and we hadn't been back there for thirty-some years. So we were really looking forward to go back, and there were a number of reasons why we were heading back. One was we wanted to see old friends, and we have some friends there. They were college students while I was in seminary, and our house was always open. We'd come home. we never quite sure who was going to be in our house. And some of those that were kids at that time are, you know, now they have their adults with adult children. And we were out and we got together with them. And it was so much fun because, again, we hadn't seen each other for almost 30 years. And we could sit down and just almost pick up from when we had left off. That was a lot of fun. We played tourists for a while. And if you know anything about northern Indiana, you know that northern Indiana is an Amish area. And so we did the Amish thing um, and uh, enjoyed that for a couple of days. But one of the other reasons we won back is, as many of you know if you've been here at the church for a while, that Cindy and I lost a child between our oldest and our next son, or our oldest daughter and our next son. And uh, she was buried out in Louisiana, I mean out in Indiana, and we hadn't seen the grave for 30 some years. And so there was a desire to kind of go out and to, to reconnect and to see the grave again and to just kind of remember those days, re- remember the faithfulness of the Lord in the midst of the pain and the hurt and the loss. And uh, it was a really good time for Cindy and I, and it was a, a special time for us. At the cemetery, the place in which our daughter is buried is Children's Garden, what's it called? Babyland. Babyland, that's what it was called. It was called Babyland. And it's where all of the infants or, or stillborn children are buried in that particular cemetery. When you go there, there are these strips maybe about two feet wide and 50 feet long of concrete. And that's where the grave markers set, and then in front of that is where the burial takes place. And when we were there and when we buried our daughter Kelly, there were about four rows, I guess, something like that, that existed. Now there's about eight. And as we were walking among the, the different grave markers, we, I found myself having a very interesting experience. I found that as I was looking at those stones, I, I could know a lot about the people that were involved, the parents that were involved. And I found myself reacting. If you look at our daughter's grave, and it's a stone about that big, next to her are two places that are completely empty of any markers. And I know the story, why? In Indiana, there was a cult that existed, that did not believe in taking children to doctors. And those two empty grave areas next to my daughter's grave were two children, infants, that died of simple childhood diseases because their parents were unwilling to take them to the doctor. And as I looked at those empty spots, I found myself getting really kind of angry at the foolishness of such things. As we walked among them, there were some other graves that I found to be impacting of me in a way that made me sad. Some of them were graves in which, markers in which the child had passed away several years ago. And yet all around the stone were stuffed animals and new toys and things like that that the parents had placed there. And, and I found myself just grieving for those parents and the difficulty that they were facing and dealing with the struggle of grief of holding on and letting go and, and finding that balance in your life. And I just found myself thinking and praying for those couples and hoping that they would find some hope in the midst of that. And then there were some other grave markers. And they were angels. And there were angels all over the place in the midst of this, this cemetery for the area for these little children. And if it were the idea that the angels came and you know had taken them to the presence of the Father or something like that, I could have kind of rejoiced in that, but the idea was you know here lies our little angel or our child has become an angel or or those kinds of phrases and as i saw those i found myself thinking and again a sense of sadness at the lack of biblical understanding an understanding of the greatness of what god is really doing and what god is really about as I, as I saw those grave markers, I thought to myself, I'm not sure that those couples really are caught up in the truths of God's word, or they're more caught up in sort of our civic religion, our, the religion of our culture. And I found myself sad. You see, so often when we read God's word, we, we have these filters of our own culture. We have our our filters of the stories we've seen or the cartoons we grew up with or the movies that we've seen. You know, we've all seen It's a Wonderful Life and Clarence. You know, who dies and is an angel waiting for his wings. And every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. There's a theological term for that. Baloney. Now, I'm not condemning these parents who were struggling with their loss. I, I, Cindy and I have walked through that loss. We know the pain. We know the, the difficulty and the struggle and how you long to have some things to hold on to. But there are some greater things and some greater hope and some greater truth than sort of the civic stories we find and things we find in our culture. As I was walking through there at the time, too, I was kind of thinking through my Advent messages and what I was going to do and how I was going to approach them. And I suddenly thought, you know, I want to approach them in a unique way. I want to talk about the angels and talk about what it must have been like some 2,000 years ago to be an angel watching what was going on. What it would have been like to be one of those creatures who was in the very presence of God himself, who knew God through the eons of their existence, who knew the Father and knew the Son and knew the Spirit and saw God in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty, To come with an announcement, God's about to do something that is beyond our full comprehension. What was it like for those creatures, for those beings? And as we look at it, we'll look at the four proclamations, angelic proclamations you find in the gospel account in Luke and Matthew. Three of them are found in Luke, one is found in Matthew. The three pronouncements are the first one to Zechariah, an old priest and his old wife, who's ministering in the midst of the temple. The second is to a virgin named Mary. And that same angel comes and says to Mary, I've got some news for you. The third one is found in Matthew, and it's Joseph. And it's a message that says, Joseph, let's get some things straight. And then the one that just burst forth, where it's not just one angel, but only the second time in all of the history of God's eternality, all of the angels break forth in an incredible proclamation and song. When you look at those proclamations, in particular as we look at the first one of Zechariah this morning, The angelic proclamations provide us with hope from an eternal perspective, from a perspective of those that knew God before the very creation of the earth, who have some sense of what God is doing, who have a visual reality of God's glory and majesty and power, From that perspective, they bring the message. Now, in order to understand this whole thing, we have to have a proper concept of angels. And I was really frustrated the last two weeks as I was getting ready to do this message, and I was looking for the the, the pictures to put up on the overheads. I could not find one. Not one that showed angels as they really are. And so I thought, first, we have to understand what angels are. The first thing we need to understand is this that angels were created before the creation of the earth. I don't know the time. You don't know the time. The scripture doesn't really tell us exactly the time. Some think it was in in Genesis chapter 1. Some think it was before and in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We are not really sure when the angels were created. But God created them directly. They are not babies who have gone to heaven They are not the souls of those who have died. They are not waiting to get their wings. They were God's creation. And as far as we can tell, God created all of the angels at one time. And none are being added. The angels exist. Now, there are a lot of them. How many? 10,000 times 10,000 plus 1,000. It's like innumerable. We, we, you couldn't count them all. And Job 38 is the passage in which God is challenging Job. And he, he asked Job, Job, where were you when I created the entire universe? And the angels began to sing out in glory and majesty of the wonder of what God was doing. Again, twice in history, once at creation, and the other was the birth of Christ. Maybe those are two pretty significant events. As they sang to the glory and the majesty of God. You know, I think the Boston Tabernacle Choir is amazing when it sings the hallelujah chorus. Can you imagine what it was like to hear the angels sing however they sang? The second thing we need to know about angels is some angels fell by joining Satan's rebellion before the creation of the earth. When did it happen? Sometime back in eons past. And it's, we're, it's some think, I'm not really sure, I tend to think, yes, that, that Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah, 20, uh, Isaiah 14 may speak of that rebellion. But one of the angels, considered one of the great angels, the leading angels, chose to rebel against God. Took a third with him. And for eons... There was this battle going on that that God allowed between those that were fallen and those that remained faithful to God and in the heavens and in areas we don't perceive. This great battle was going on. Now, the victory was certain. The outcome was sure. But I find it so interesting that God allows his creatures to be a part of that battle. We're a part of that battle. Got to put this on. We're a part of that battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's, there's an invisible warfare that's going on that we are a part of, and the angels have been a part of that for eons. Chris mentioned this morning that as... as Humans, we we wait for the return of the Lord. We wait for those things that God is taking place or will take place. We we wait for the advent of Christ. Can you imagine the angels wondering what God was going to do? Watching as, as God took and created this creature called man out of the very mud of the earth. And the one who could not defeat Satan, the angelic host who in and of themselves could not defeat this great power, God says it's through this created thing, this this flesh, this mud creature, that Satan's head will be crushed. God will be glorified. Imagine what the angels thought of that. And then watching this creature fall and rebel against God in ways that would have caused for them eternal damnation with no possibility of redemption. And wondering for centuries, what is God going to do? Revelation 12, 7 through 12 tell us that because of the death of Christ, That Satan is defeated and all of the armies he had following him are cast out, waiting for their final destruction. But they waited and waited and waited to see what God would do. Now, as those involved in that battle, can we please understand this? That angels are awesome, fearsome, heavenly warriors battling the forces of Satan. And they don't have wings. Only two types of angels have wings. Cherubim and seraphim. Those are the only ones that have wings. All the others, whenever they appear, they appear like man. But they're awesome. Every time an angel shows up, do you remember how man reacts? Or woman reacts? They were terrified. Because the angels... Are awesome, not aww. That's how we draw them. You know, the, the naked baby cherubim, you know, the, the fluffy naked babies kind of flying around. No way, or the sort of effeminate with these long flowing dresses and the harp and the wings. We have one out in the, in the foyer. You don't have to take it away. I, I, I know it's sort of our cultural understanding. No. These aren't awe. These are awesome. Powerful creatures. Whose simple touch could undo you. Who, as reflections of the glory of God, overwhelm anyone who sees them. And they don't have wings. That was what was so frustrating. Finding an angel without wings anywhere. But more than that, angels are God's messengers. They bring the messages that God wants his people to hear. And sometimes it's messages of of judgment as God comes and through the angels he proclaims the judgment that's going to take place in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes it's good news that the birth of a child as he comes and he pronounces that Samuel will be born or that Samson will be born or that Jesus or that John the Baptist will be born. Sometimes as you read in Revelation the angels proclaim the coming judgment of God upon the whole earth. Sometimes when you read particularly Revelation it is a message about the glory and the majesty and the power and the awesomeness of God the angels bring messages only two angels are named and both of them are in relationship with the nation of Israel Michael is called Israel's protector and Gabriel seems to be the one that brings the announcements to Israel. He's found in Daniel 9 and Daniel ten. And yeah, I know, you know, the the, the archangels that are listed in Raphael and this one and that one. That's not biblical. Sorry. And then finally, angels dwell in the very presence of God and are aware of God's dealing with mankind. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12. As Peter is talking about the Old Testament prophets and how they wrote about the time that was to come, and we are living in that very time as God is fulfilling those promises that he had given all throughout the Old Testament. Peter says, and the angels eagerly watch what God is doing. You can kind of see the angels without wings, standing there in heaven, just kind of looking in anticipation. What's he going to do? What's God going to do? What's he about? What's he bringing? How's he going to resolve this? How is the sinfulness of man going to be dealt with? How is Satan going to be defeated through these creatures? How is his kingdom going to be established? God, how are you going to do this? And then he calls Gabriel and says, Gabriel, come here. There's an old couple, and he's about to enter into the temple, and I'm about to do something. Why don't you take him this message? And so as you read in Luke chapter 1 and you get to verse 5, Luke tells us the period of time. It's during the reign of King Herod. And a priest by the name of Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth who was a descendant of Aaron, Aaron, both of them were upright and righteous in God's sight. But she was without a child in her old age. And suddenly, an angel is sent. God says to Gabriel, take this message. I'm about to do something. I'm about to shake things up. And Gabriel is sent. Gabriel is sent. Now, we are introduced to that pious couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. We know only a couple of things about them. We know that they are a godly couple. That we know that they are a faithful couple. We know that they are obedient and obeying God's law. We know that that Zechariah is a priest and he's part of those that go into the very temple in order to to bring the worship before God, whether it's the incense or whether it's the sacrifices. He's a part of that. We also know that they have a painful struggle in their lives. One that is painful today, but was even worse in the first century. And that was, this was a couple without a child. Now today, that's a painful struggle. That's difficult. But back then, it was shameful. For the assumption was that if you were childless, God was judging you. Can you imagine being this righteous couple who are honored by God and through their whole life living under the shadow of the shame of childlessness? We know something else. We are present at the very high point of Zechariah's career. He's an older man, but he gets to do something he has never done before. In verse eight, it says, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot to bring the incense before God and to lay it before God. Now again, we don't quite get what's being said there. There were so many priests. There were about 18,000 priests at this time that they divided the priests up into divisions. And he was of the third division, the v- division of Abijah, by the way, which didn't have a particularly good reputation. So poor Zachariah, already under the shame of childlessness in the first century, is a part of Abijah, which is kind of a, you know, they're all right, but. And then it says this. He was chosen by Lot. To burn incense before God. You were only ever allowed to do that once in your entire life. And once you had done it, you could not do it again because there were so many priests. And now as an old man, Zechariah finally gets to burn incense before God in the temple. And he gets to walk up those temple steps and watch those huge doors, 40 feet tall, open up and walk into the the holy place that stands before the holy of holies and a room that was totally covered in gold. And in that room on his left was the, the candlesticks. And on his right was the, te- the table of showbread. And in front of him was the altar upon which he would put the incense. But before that, in front of that, were the great curtains that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the very presence of God, where the high priest could go one time a year, and he better get everything right, because if he didn't, God would strike him dead. It was such an awesome place to stand before the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was considered so awesome that the priest wore bells around his robes and wore a rope tied to his leg so that if he got in there and he died, they could pull him out. Otherwise, they'd have to wait till next year and he would stinketh. And he's standing there. He puts the incense on the altar that he spent about an hour preparing. And he begins to speak the prayer that God would deliver his people. That God would send his anointed one. That God would send the Messiah And as he came to the end of that prayer, he would lay himself prostrate in front of the the altar and pray and cry out to God that God would deliver the nation. And at that moment, the angel appears. In fact, it's so understated. In verse 11, then, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side, the the side of of honor, the side of dignity of that altar. And when that happened, Zechariah was startled and gripped with fear. The idea was he was terrified. There's an intensification of the idea of fear there. And Michael brings the message. And it is in that message you see the awesomeness of God as it seeks to bring about salvation for man. Basically, Gabriel's message is simply this. God is answering your prayer. Now, the question becomes what prayer? For years, I am sure that Elizabeth and Zechariah prayed, God, give us a child. God, give us a child. God, give us a child. And it was never answered. But there's another prayer going on. God, deliver your people. For 400 years, we've heard nothing from you. For 400 years, there's been no addition to Scripture. For 400 years, we've had no particular prophet that is proclaimed in God's Scripture to be God's prophet. For 400 years, we've been under the domination of the Gentiles. For 400 years, we've cried out at this temple, and nothing has happened. and Gabriel says oh yes it has god is at work and as you begin to read down through that passage and you, you read the message that Zechariah brings i mean i'm sorry that Gabriel brings and he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you're to call him John and he will be the delight of many and he will rejoice because many will rejoice because of his birth and he's never to take of wine or strong drink. And then in verse 18, many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what Gabriel is doing, if you read through that, he's taking what for us is traditionally the last book of the Old Testament and that 400 years of silence and he's saying, you think God has not been at work. You think God has been silent. But all this time, God has been working it out. God is been preparing. God has been using the nations and the people and the Gentiles and all that is going on to bring about what God has designed and purposed from the very beginning of creation. Gabriel could say, I've watched the Father. I've watched the Son I've watched the Spirit as they've been at work in their people's lives. And though you may not understand all that's going on, though you may not understand all that's taking place, God is at work. And as his people, you're a part of it. God is making you a part of what is going on. He is answering that prayer. And by the way, Zachariah, not only the prayer for Israel, but that prayer you have now given up praying about, that child, I know Elizabeth is no spring chicken, but she's going to have a baby. A boy. And you're going to name him John. We have hope. That no matter what is going on around us, no matter what is taking place in our lives, no matter the the time and the delay of God's prayer, God is at work. He's accomplishing his purpose in your life. He's accomplishing his purpose in this church. He's accomplishing his purpose in your family. He's accomplishing his purpose in our nation. He's accomplishing his purpose in our world, and all of it is for his kingdom and glory. We have hope because Gabriel came and said, I know, 400 years. And every single one of those quotes is out of Malachi. Probably the last prophetic book written before that time of silence. We have hope knowing that God is at work even when he seems silent. Beloved, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, there are times that God just seems to be distant. Isaiah 50 talks about the times when we walk in the darkness, not darkness of sin, but the darkness of kind of uncertainty or confusion. And, and it says there that what we need to be careful of is that we don't light our own lights, our own lamps, but that we trust in God. We, we wait on him. God is at work. What's that thing you've been praying for year after year after year? God's not silent. He's at work. What's that event in your life that has broken your life, that has broken your heart? And you wonder, where is God? God is at work, even when it seems silent. We have hope knowing that God is at work even when the situation is chaotic. And you see some of the chaos there as he talks about the fact that he will bring the people back to the Lord. And he will go out as the one preparing the way for the Messiah. And he will bring the children and their fathers together. And there will be a rightness in the horizontal relationships that allow and reflect the rightness in the vertical relationship. In the midst of a political turmoil, this is Herod the Great. Who Caesar wrote of, it's better to be a pig in his household than one of his sons. And what he meant was that Herod wouldn't kill a pig and eat it because he was trying to be a practicing Jew. But if you were one of his sons and he felt threatened by you, you were gone. God's in control. God's working out his purpose. You know, I don't know how you felt about two weeks ago with the election, but God's in control and working out his purposes. And then finally, we have hope knowing that God is at work using even our struggles to accomplish his purposes. What difficulty are you facing? Is it the loss of a child? Is it struggles in a relationship? Is it health? Is it work? Beloved, God will use that to bring him glory. God used the barrenness of Elizabeth to accomplish the greatness. Of his purpose now how are we to respond well again i mean this is the old this is a narrative version of the verse we know in Romans 8:28 and we know that in all things god works for good for those who love him who have been called according to his purpose god is at work we may not know the exact outcome we may not know exactly what he's accomplishing But he is at work and accomplishing. What's our response? Faith. Trust. And I wish I could go on and say, and Zechariah heard the message and he got up from praying and he said, oh, God, wonderful, I can't wait. And he ran outside of the temple and he said, guess what? God's giving me a son and that son's the forerunner of the Messiah. I just can't wait. But if you know the story, Zachariah says basically this, prove it. Now, that's my translation, but that's basically what he's saying there. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I... Zachariah, how can you be sure you're in a gold-plated room? You're standing before the Holy of Holies. You've just been on your face proclaiming God's prayer that God would deliver his people. You've just seen an archangel. And you still can't believe? God's word says... I've risen my son from the grave. And you still can't believe? I worked it all out. And you still can't believe? And the fact is, and if it had been my response, it would have been, what is wrong with you, Zachariah? But the fact is, even the best at times, lack faith in response to God's revelation. And even the best lack faith in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. Do you know what God did? He gently rebuked his child. He corrects him and says, "Zechariah, here's what's going to happen. Your life will be silent for nine months. And the word actually speaks of being both mute and deaf. Can you imagine having to wait nine months to tell the story? If you're like me, I want to tell the story right away. For nine months. And finally, when the baby is born, and John scribes out, call him John. He is suddenly able to speak and hear again. God says, Zachariah, will you trust me? That's his question to us. I've revealed that I'm in control. The angels have brought the message. My son has come. He was born. He lived. He died. And he was resurrected. I've been working in your life. However long you've been walking with the Lord, will you trust that God is at work? It begins by accepting the gift of eternal life in Christ. And it ends in eternity with him. And through it all, God says, trust me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message we find and the pronouncement of the angels. We pray, Lord, that we would be those that live out that reality, that certainty in our lives. Father, I pray that if there's someone here that's never trusted your son as their Savior, has not begun that relationship, that they would come and speak to somebody about how they might know how to do so. Father, for all of us, I pray that we would have that hope in the fact that you are at work always in our lives, a a, a fact proclaimed by the angels, but made certain through the resurrection of your son. And until he returns, until that second advent, we wait with anticipation, waiting to see what you will do and how you will do it. We ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.